Welcome to Brainchild, a CanLearn Society podcast. This is a podcast that is dedicated to bringing you trustworthy information about topics related to child development, mental health, learning disabilities, ADHD, and autism. Join our host, registered psychologist Krista Florand, as she interviews knowledgeable researchers and clinicians to provide families with the most up-to-date information on child development and disorders. To stay connected, visit canlearnsociety.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to brainchild at canlearnsociety.ca. CanLearn Society is a not-for-profit organization located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We serve children, youth, and adults who have literacy, attention, and learning challenges. For more information about CanLearn, check out our website at canlearnsociety.ca. At CanLearn, we are dedicated to unlocking potential so all can learn. Hello everyone, this is Krista Forand. I'm a registered psychologist at the CanLearn Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And welcome to Brainchild, our uh, newest podcast project. If you haven't known already, we have other podcasts called Inside ADHD as part of our ADHD Families Project. So uh, go and subscribe to that on iTunes or your favorite podcast player and check out our episodes there for Inside ADHD. In this podcast, Brainchild, we've teamed up with researchers at the Oworko Center here in Calgary, which is really great because the Oworko Center uh, has a whole bunch of researchers that come from different departments from the University of Calgary, including medicine, psychology, social work, education, and nursing. Um, and they look at a lot of things like childhood development, parenting, mental health, things like that. Um, today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nicole Racine, who does some research in these areas, looking at things like maternal mental health, um, stress and anxiety, um, ACEs, or what's being referred to as adverse childhood experience. And what's really great is in our conversation, we were also able to talk about resiliency or the things that uh, help us. Uh, buffer the negative effects of some of the early childhood experiences that might be negative to not only us, but um, particularly when we're talking about women, uh, pregnant women who have children, how do we buffer the stress of those early experiences on the development of uh, babies? So I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's speak with Dr. Nicole Racine. here with Dr. Nicole Racine from the Awerko Center and we're excited because this is our second officially podcast in our series that we're doing. We do have three though because we had a bonus episode from last June um, and today we're going to talk about the kind of research that you do so welcome and thank you so much for taking time to 
to join me in conversation. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm, <laughs> I'm really excited to be here with yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. So uh, before we co- kind of go into the more detail of your research, tell me a little bit in general, and maybe for other people who, have, who don't know about Owerco, the, uh, the Owerco Center and the, the research that you do here. Yeah, sure. So the Owerco Center is affiliated with the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute, and it's a center uh, that brings together a number of researchers uh, who are all interested in child development, neurodevelopmental disorders, and uh, children's psychopathology. And so the goal with bringing everybody together is that we have a bunch of interdisciplinary researchers, so that means people who are from a bunch of different areas. So we have people from nursing, people from psychology, people from medicine. And the goal is that if everyone puts their brains together, uh, that hopefully we can help come up with some research and some solutions that'll be helpful for children and families, uh, not just here in Calgary, but you know in Canada and more broadly. So it's really yeah. a place for people to come together and work together. I love that too, the idea of um, having researchers from different disciplines or fields of study because I think sometimes we're answering similar questions but we're not seeing what's going on you know in other areas of practice or for research so we might be missing some really major advances in those areas and so it's nice to see that in general a lot of research is going that route mm-hmm. of working together communicating with each other you know taking a look at the perspectives of other professionals who look at things a little bit differently instead of being really narrow-minded. <laughs> For sure. And I think that is actually one of my favorite parts about the work mm-hmm. that I do here is that, uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist, yeah. uh, and so I often tend to focus a lot on things at the individual level, so knowing, right. okay, what's going on for individual children and families, or say, for example, epidemiologists are interested in what's happening at the population level, mm-hmm. what's happening for really large groups of people, what trends are we seeing, and so uh, it's fun because we get to look at things in different ways, and sometimes we have have healthy debate about yes. how we want to how we look at something or um, how we need to address something. And yeah. so I think that's a really great way to have people move forward. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And so before we sort of get into more details, give us kind of a general overview overview of some of the research you've been doing at the Oracle Center. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Yeah. I'll give you some background. So I would say most of my research would fall uh, in the area of maternal child health. So I focus a lot on um, the parent-child relationship and how aspects, um, things that are going on for moms and for parents, how that might impact and influence their kids. So some of the really early research that I was involved in was actually uh, with moms who had substance use Mm -hmm. difficulties and who were pregnant and parenting. Uh, And so I was involved in um, an evaluation of uh, of a big program that was helping moms who um, had drug and alcohol Mm. use issues. Uh, This was in in Toronto. Uh, And it was a a treatment program that addressed not just mom's substance use issues, but also uh, helped her in her parenting Mm. uh, and helped to support her and her child's development. And we were comparing this program to a program that was only focused on substance use. So didn't look at women as mothers. Uh, only focused on you know the fact that they needed uh, that they were trying to be in recovery, and what we actually found was the program who the program that addressed 
uh, not only women's substance use issues, but also their role as parents was more successful. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the main reasons for that, we think, is that pregnancy and parenting is actually a time, a window of opportunity. Mm. It's a time for change. It's a time where people want to make changes in mm. their life. And for most parents, I think, there's nothing more precious to them than their kids. Yeah. And so if you can include uh, the parenting role and being a parent as part of um, other life changes that you want to make, I yeah. think that's, it's really powerful. So that, that was one of my very first research experiences. And I thought, wow, you know, <laughs> parents and um, the parent-child relationship is um, a powerful tool. It's a mechanism for change. It's a way to yeah. engage families. And it's also, um, I think, has a big impact on how, how kids develop. Uh, so that work uh, led me uh, here to the Awoko mm. Center where I've been focusing a lot on uh, moms' uh, stress, um, their past traumatic experiences, right. um, how that's linked to their health mm. in pregnancy and the postpartum, and how that is also linked to their children's development right. and health. So we're really interested in, in understanding um, the how. So how is it that um, past experiences and stress influence not only health of mom, but health of baby. And also, um, what can we do about that? So how is it that we can best support uh, parents and their children? And what are ways that we can intervene? Um, because ultimately, hmm. the goal is to have healthy families and children. Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask about the, the Toronto program. Sure. Because um, it made me think about something that's interesting is and and correct me if I'm wrong but the program that had better outcomes where they were focusing on helping with parenting mm -hmm. versus just um, addressing the substance use yes. um, to me that's very intuitive because parenting can be very stressful and and, and substance use or abuse is often associated, it's a coping me mechanism yeah. for stress. Yes. So if we're just telling people to stop abusing substances, but not helping them to alleviate the stress in their lives, it's kind of a, an insensitive way to help them because it's sort of saying, well, the substance abuse is the outcome, it's the mm -hmm. symptom of the problem. Mm -hmm. But to say, hey, you know, we know that you want to be a good parent. You might just need a bit of support in how to do that, mm -hmm. particularly if it's it's stressful for you. For sure. So it's just nice to see that, um, yeah, that approach to just saying, uh, well, just get clean, just get clean. Like, it's not that easy when the stressors are still present that are that are making substance use an easier alternative for coping, I mm -hmm. guess, if that makes sense. I don't know. But that yeah, kind of and rings true I think, with you what know, you the found. families that, um, that we were seeing within the program were, were really vulnerable families. Yeah. So these are families who uh, really had experienced a lot of difficulty yeah. in their lifetime uh, and were all experiencing ongoing difficulty, not only mm. with substance use issues, but, um, you know, with, with having enough tangible resources, yeah. with... So being able to attend a program, it's a lot of work. Yes. You know, getting on transit every day and, you know, 
bringing your kid. And so having things like childcare, having meals be offered, being in an environment where people understood if you needed to leave your session a little bit early to breastfeed. Yes. Uh, you know, it just, I think, made for an environment yeah. that's, that's more supportive and perhaps... Uh, you know, might lead to less dropout right? and might promote people staying in the program and being able to finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it also, the the sort of attitude behind that program reminds me of um, Ross Green's sort of saying, like, kids do well if they can. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to start with that. Um, as clinicians, we have to start with that assumption that kids, but also parents... Mm-hmm want to be good people Mm -hmm. so kids want to do well at school and be you know um, liked and have friends and do well at things and parents want to be good parents of course I don't think we can start with the assumption that someone wants to be a horrible parent Mm -hmm. um we have to start with the assumption that they want to do the best that they can and so if we start with that we have to say well let's help with those stressors Instead of just sort of saying, well, you need to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I think, a more compassionate approach to healthcare and mental health and social services that mm-hmm. I think a lot of, um, that we could all learn from and sort of, it reminds us, like, what's ultimately our working assumptions Absolutely. as professionals, yes. too, and how we deliver programs and services to people like if we have that underlying assumption that people want to do well Mm -hmm. then we can start from that attitude of supportiveness and I totally agree with you I've never met a parent who didn't want the absolute best for their child and wasn't uh you know trying their their hardest uh, with the resources and um abilities that they had yes and so I think yeah if we start there Mm -hmm. and start with that assumption I think uh, that's a good thing um, and you, uh, so you do a lot of um, research here at Oworko with maternal mental health. Maybe mm-hmm. talk a bit more about that. Yeah, so the, um, I'm not a one-person show, mm-hmm. a part of a, a really a great team um, called the All Our Families team, and that's uh, led by Dr. Suzanne Tuff. And um, my other um, research mentor is Dr. Sherry Madigan, and um, as a team, we work together. The All Our Families project is one that uh, has been following more than 3,000 uh, mm-hmm. moms and uh, babies. Um, the moms were originally recruited into the study when they were pregnant. So when they first nice. went um, for some of their yeah. uh, prenatal blood appointments and things like that, <laughs> they were recruited into the study. And uh, they the kids are eight now and they've been followed um, multiple times over the first year of life um, at um, two years three years um, five years and now they're eight and filling out questionnaires and um, we're starting to plan and get ready for the 12 year questionnaire so this is it's a really um, unique Hmm. study because we've been able to follow people over time and see uh, you know how things are evolving how things are changing and that also helps us to know and do research about, you know, how are things, say things that happen in pregnancy, how does that influence things that are happening later, Hmm. and how does that impact um, children. And we've asked, as part of the All Our Family study, we've asked moms about also things that happened to them um, earlier in their life. Hmm. So ask them about uh, experiences that they had in childhood, and some of 
my research around um, stress and trauma has really focused mm. on um, what we call adverse childhood yeah. experiences, and I can talk a little bit more yeah. about that. Um, but really, those are experiences um, largely that, that are negative, that people experience mm. in, in their childhood under the age of 18, and they include things like um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, sexual abuse, neglect, and they also include things um, that happen within families, so um, within relationships and families. So things like a, subs- a parent with a substance use issue, yeah. uh, a parent who's been incarcerated or maybe mm-hmm. had a mental health problem. And what we've looked at is whether um, having those experiences when mm-hmm. you were a child, does that impact your health um, when you're pregnant and in the postpartum? Right. And do those experience experiences actually also lead to developmental difficulties for kids. Right. So do we see this kind of um, transmission across yes. generations? So that yeah. has been one area of focus of our work. And I found it um, interesting when I was reading some of your papers, the mm-hmm. World Health Organization saying that between 10 and 20% of women experience mental health difficulties, pregnancy or postpartum. Mm-hmm. That's pretty high. And yeah. I think most people would be surprised mm-hmm. at that statistic. And I think why I was a little surprised is then I think, well, because probably um, a lot of moms are trying to cope on their own and not seeking support. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're seeking support, but that that uh, disclosure of those challenges maybe isn't hitting the doctors or mm-hmm. other professionals. So... <sighs> In that case, and oh, and they're saying basically it's a global health concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I hear that, I'm obviously starting to see why they're saying that because moms and parents in general are so crucial to raising the next generation. Yeah. So it is a global health concern. Yeah. Maybe talk a bit about that. And like, what do you think about that? And mm-hmm. I don't know if we're taking that statistically or that statistic as seriously as we should be, maybe mm-hmm. as a society. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that certainly when I read those statistics too, I think like, wow, that's, mm. you know, that can be up to one in five yes. women, right, experiencing a mental health difficulty. And certainly we know um, pregnancy is, it's a tax, biologically and emotionally mm-hmm. is taxing. Yes. Uh, and so is being, so is, um, you know, in the postpartum period, um, there's a lot of adjustment associated with that. Right. Having a new baby, having to care for an entire new human being, shifts in roles, mm-hmm. perhaps shifts in what you were doing before, what you're doing now. Yeah. A human being who's entirely dependent on you and and needs you. Those are those are big life changes and big life yeah. milestones. And so, in some ways, it's not surprising that when you have these major mm-hmm. life shifts, that that's also going to be a time, especially for people who might be vulnerable to experiencing mental health difficulties, that that might be the case. Yes. Um, we know that one of the biggest predictors of having mental health difficulties in pregnancy and the postpartum is actually having experienced difficulties before. Right. So we have a good idea. You know, certainly um, anyone could be susceptible to experiencing um, difficulties, but we mm. have a good idea too. If this is something you've struggled with in the past, it may also be something that you might struggle with throughout right. pregnancy and the and the postpartum and so 
you know, I think there's starting to be more and more recognition that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, certainly in Canada, there's um, a, a collaborative of people who are kind of pushing towards there being um, a, a mental health strategy mm. for pregnancy and the postpartum specifically. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in terms of, of underreporting, I think that's, that's an issue too. We know um, if women aren't asked, less than 20% will report hmm. an, is- an issue to a healthcare provider. So it's really important for healthcare providers to ask. Yes. <laughs> um, and for there to be mental health screening in, in pregnancy and the postpartum, but also, yes. um, you know, at a broader social level, um, mm. for people to, to be supportive and compassionate um, to women as they go through yes. those life transitions, <laughs> right? If we don't have systems that make those life transitions maybe a little bit easier or if in our work environment or our communities uh, we're not looking out for people as they go through this life transition, yeah. um, you know, that might not, be not, might not be so helpful. So I think that, you know, as a society, those are things we need to be mindful about. Yes, and I think the the point you make about a disclosure of an early um, adverse event or trauma mm-hmm. in someone's life or any part of their life may not occur unless they're explicitly asked. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of when I was doing my training to become a psychologist. Um, another senior psychologist that I highly respect, I remember him saying to me, um, it's important to ask about those events and experiences because you may be the only person that ever actually mm-hmm. asks that person or mm-hmm. that child mm-hmm. or and to provide the opportunity for someone to actually um, tell the story, get it off their chest and then as a, as a you know as a team decide with them like you you and the client decide what might be done to support them in that. Um, so I think it is important and for any, um, physicians or psychologists or other, um, health professionals who are listening to consider, you know, are you asking those questions and depending on the answers you're getting, what kinds of supports are you trying to put in place for your patients or your clients so that they know they can trust you when they bring those things mm-hmm. up? Cause that's also a, there's stigma to this. And trauma, it's really hard when you bring it up and then you don't get support. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really reinforce telling those stories to people. Mm-hmm. So that's something I would probably encourage if there's anyone listening who works with people who might, you know, who might have those, thing, those early experiences. And we all sort of have them to some extent, right? I mean, some of them are probably less severe, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing air quotes for people who are yeah. listening. But I think some of the big research yeah. um, has shown that sixty uh, percent of people have experienced at least one exactly um, ACE. Yeah. You know, and so so they're really common. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes a lot of the some of the research that we've done has shown that we see more health difficulties and mental health difficulties mm-hmm. for women who have experienced four or more. Right. So it's when it's not just. Um, say one mm-hmm. experience, but it's the accumulation yes. of these experiences over time, um, the and the clustering of those together, yes. and it's really about if those 
um, someone could have experienced four or five or six ACEs in the context of supportive relationships and actually be coping mm, well. Yes. So it's not that it's not deterministic. Yes. Um, but we know that when you um, experience the more of these experiences that you've had, the more severe they are. Right. Um, the, the bigger they, the impact they kind of tend to have down yeah. the line. And you read my mind because I was about <laughs> to say. <laughs> Aces aren't deterministic. I remember um, reading that, I think, in one of your papers, this idea that we also don't want to give the message that, you know, if you've had four or more, then you're going to have X, Y, and Z to struggle with mm-hmm. in your adult life. Because um, uh, that's certainly not a fun message to be giving people either. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the, on the one hand, we want to take it seriously, and we want people to know that these things can affect you in negative ways, but maybe talk a bit about that, how how early childhood uh, adverse events in childhood are not deterministic, and f- for for people who are listening, what we mean by that is um, it's not necessary, necessarily that if you have four or more, you're going to have considerable stress or mental health problems mm-hmm. in the adult period of your life, what what the word we usually use in this case is resili- resiliency. So how do we sort of buffer against some of that? And I know we've talked a bit about that when we talked with um, Jerry Giesbrecht, but maybe from your perspective, where are you seeing where um, people are sort of rising above that mm-hmm. earlier childhood yeah. trauma? Yeah, and this has been has been a focus of our work and actually in some ways um, an exciting part of the mm-hmm. work because I think whenever you know we share our research with people and we do we talk to people uh, it can be a really Debbie Downer mm-hmm. message <laughs> if you don't also talk about what can we what can we do and uh, what are ways in which we actually disrupt yes. the path right from having experienced trauma to health and mental health difficulties yeah, yeah. for uh, women who are pregnant and and Hmm. parenting. And one of the studies that we did, we actually looked at, uh, so for women who had experienced um, four or more adversities, if they had also experienced high social support Hmm. when they were pregnant, um, did that have an impact or did that kind of buffer the effects of um, ACEs on their health and mental health? And what we found was Hmm. that it did. So even if you had experienced these uh, childhood adversities, if in your adult life you reported that you had people who were there to emotionally hmm. support you, people who tangibly supported you, so they right. you know, um, did things for you, helped you with things, provided you with information, uh, hmm. that those women, even though they had had negative experiences, yeah. um, their health was better. And so I think uh, this idea that uh, you know, ACEs are experienced in the context of relationship. Yeah. And what also has the power to buffer those experiences or heal those experiences, again, are relationships. Yes. Healthy relationships. And so if we can help people to um, foster good relationships in their life that are going to be supportive, um, those people are going to be better off. Yes. And that that's hard sometimes because... Uh, if you've grown up in a context where perhaps relationships haven't always been healthy, mm. um, it can be hard to break that 
that cycle and yes. to start to develop relationships that are are in fact going to be going to be healthy um, but you know there are certainly ways that people are able able yeah. to do that and um, I think it also speaks to for people who who are vulnerable and have had these experiences mm-hmm. how as a society do we support them Right. Um, and how, you know, not just in the context of going to, you know, getting treatment for mental health, that's important, um, but how do we, how do we all support each other, mm-hmm. and um, within communities, what can we do to support each other? Yeah, and I think, uh, before we turn the microphone on, we were talking a bit about this, and you mentioned just a really common sense, but very simple example of mm-hmm. shoveling somebody else's walk, um, it's very snowy and very cold right now in mm-hmm. Calgary as mm-hmm. we're recording this. Yes. And I just think to myself that whole idea of being a snow angel that they kind of yeah. talk about on TV. Um, doing things to help other people who may who may or may not be struggling, but just doing those kinds of acts of kindness to, to make some, some kind of social connection with your neighbor or whoever it is. Um, you know, uh, last summer we picked apples from our tree. It was actually the neighbor's tree, but it was falling into our yard. So we picked the apples off, and then we put them on Kijiji for yes. people to come pick up. <laughs> and lots of people came to get the apples yes. for free. And then the next day, uh, someone rang our doorbell, and it was a woman who had came the day earlier to get apples, and she brought us pies that were made out of our apples. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think she had been fairly new to Canada, and she, I think she was you know, doing her bit yes. to say, hey, well, I'm here and mm-hmm. here's what I'd like to give you, you know, because you let me have some of your apples. So just these kinds of things that I think in some way almost sound old fashioned, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're mm-hmm. so relevant to today. Um, and these sort of common sense things that that don't, and I know I've said this before, but that don't necessarily require paying a professional yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> to um, to help, you know, with increase the resiliency mm-hmm. factor. I mean, for sure, we're both psychologists and we know the value of, um, you know, treatment for mental health. Um, but in addition to that, mm-hmm. there's these social supports. And you mentioned the idea of natural supports mm-hmm. that sometimes we forget about. We want... You know, we want a really highly complicated treatment or we want the latest um, intervention that's been sort of touted mm-hmm. as the cure for things or the way to get better. But we forget, you know, sort of those basic things like social connection mm-hmm. and play and getting out in nature and um, eating healthy and all these kinds of things that really are actually quite important to just our overall well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about natural supports. Sure, What's yeah. your take uh, well, on that? It's interesting. So within the All Our Families team, that's definitely become a, a, you know, a word and a topic yeah. that uh, we've really been interested in. And, um, you know, what's when I first heard the word natural supports, I thought, what does that even mean? <laughs> uh, and it's just as you described, yeah. it's these... The supports that occur naturally within within our environments, within our families, within our communities, within our neighborhoods, and the interesting thing about hmm. natural supports is that we all have a role 
right. in, in being part of it, right? You gave your apples, and then someone brought you a pie. Yes. That was a very, you know, there was both of you were contributing to that, right. to that interaction. And, you know, in some ways we need to think about, like, whose responsibility is it mm. to help out the single parent on our street and shovel right. their walk? Or whose responsibility is it when you hear that someone down the streets had a new had a new baby, mm-hmm. um, because that can be a time that, that can be difficult. And, right. you know, certainly as a new parent myself, I mm-hmm. really appreciated all the meals people dropped yes. off, you know. <laughs> and those are the types of things that make your life a little easier yes. when you don't have to stress about what you're, what you're going to be, sure. be eating. And natural supports, it's, it's hard to study yeah. um, because it's hard to measure mm-hmm. um, because it's so broad. Uh, and so, but I, I definitely agree that those are things that are, that contribute yeah. to resilience. And last, uh, in hmm. the fall of 2017, we had a visiting scholar, uh, Dr. Ann Mastin, who's hmm. at the University of Minnesota. Who's, Resiliency. Yes, she's dedicated <laughs> her life's work to resiliency yeah. and is a, a really fantastic researcher. And her book is called Ordinary Magic. Yeah. Um, and that's the idea, is that these aren't, Nece- there's not necessarily a magic bullet mm-hmm. or a treatment protocol that right. you know erases childhood trauma or mm-hmm. um, you know that erases mental health difficulties. It's what buffers and helps people to cope are those those ordinary things mm-hmm. like positive relationships with people yes. in our communities, a teacher who believes in a child's ability and you know provides support being involved in an activity yeah. where you experience mastery. Um, those are all the types of things that that contribute to, to well-being. Yes, and that reminds me too, we often at our clinic, we talk about um, with families who have children who have just been diagnosed with ADHD, the idea that children with ADHD get a lot of negative feedback mm-hmm. about their behavior, their academic performance, all sorts of things because of the attention problems that they have or the impulsivity difficulties that they have. And so part of the treatment involves making sure that that narrative and those those comments, that feedback can be as positive as possible, setting up strategies and supports to increase success on a daily basis so that child doesn't internalize that you know, they're, they're bad or they're constantly annoying people or that they're always falling short academically because at some point that will contribute to negative outcomes in adolescence or adulthood, but that they're having successful experiences every day that reinforces, I can do this, mm-hmm. um, I am worthwhile, people do appreciate being around me. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of one example too where I think you can change self-concept and self-esteem by knowing what it is you're dealing with, mm-hmm. taking it seriously, ADHD, yeah. but saying, we're going to make sure that we set up things here so that the child has as many positive experiences and successes mm-hmm. as possible so that they know that they're a contributing member of society. And that can be um, all sorts of things, you know, you could call interventions. Of course. But simply using a, a checklist for your morning routine, which, again, is very simple as far as I've just said it. Um, doesn't cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. takes some effort to implement, 
but can be really amazing to, you know, teaching the child that they can get out the door on time. Mm -hmm. And in the long run, I think, you know, it doesn't sound that amazing in the moment, but in the long run, it's teaching that child that they're capable mm -hmm. and reminding them, I guess, that they're capable. So it's, it's kind of related, I would say, for that. Um, going back to the sort of the maternal mental health piece, yeah. when you look at the research you've done and just sort of reflected on that, what are some sort of suggestions you can give women who are pregnant or maybe planning on being pregnant in the future to sort of buffer the, the ACEs that have occurred or just improve outcomes for themselves and their children in general? Mm -hmm. So one of the, the things that we've, we've looked into, so we were able to show that for women who have experienced ACEs, that yes, um, that was associated with poor health and, mm -hmm. and mental health. And, but as I had kind of, as I had mentioned that social support definitely had a buffering, buffering effect. And so I think surrounding yourself with supportive relationships as mm -hmm. much as possible is important. Um, being able to, to advocate and say, you know, if you asking for help from, uh, from a partner or from uh, people who who are part of your family or in your environment. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, I think for women who are experiencing um, active mental health difficulties, talking to a health care provider who will yeah. be able to direct them uh, to resources and, and help them to develop, you know, some kind of plan mm -hmm. to address that, I think is really important. Um, within Calgary here, there are there are many resources actually that are available for women who might be struggling mm. with mental health, who are either um, pregnant or parenting, um, and so some of those include um, so Parent Link okay. centers. Yeah. Often there, um, there'll be there'll be groups, and they can um, that the social support also of other yes. parents can be can be really helpful in going and learning about. Uh, what experiences other parents other parents are having? Mm -hmm. um, there's a website, Healthy Parents, Healthy Children, that offers information about um, pregnancy and the postpartum period. That also has information about mental health services, and then um, there are a few different agencies or nonprofits. One of them is called Made by Mama. Okay. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of yeah, it, but it's actually a nonprofit group that. What they do is is provide support to women in pregnancy and okay. the postpartum, and these are things like home cooked meals, mm. um, someone to come to your house and hold the baby while you yeah. you do things and yeah. get things done. Yeah. Um. So really, a lot of those more tangible mm -hmm. resources and supports that can be can be <laughs> really helpful. Um. But you you were talking a little bit about the importance of, um. You know, getting a good amount of sleep. Yes. Um. You know doing it at a good amount of exercise, eating well, uh, trying to reduce the amount of stress that you're, you're experiencing in life, being kind to yourself. Yes. <laughs> Those are all things that, that are really helpful and help contribute to uh, optimizing health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to keep those in mind as sort of just as important as maybe the things that um, sometimes get more of our focus, like going to get therapy mm -hmm. if it's if it's required or connecting with a physician or things like that but just those sort of day-to-day -day lifestyle things that we we do and sometimes we forget you know and maybe there might be people who are listening who go oh well you know my 
a friend or a family member just had a baby, maybe I can go, you know, hang out with the baby for a few hours while she has a nap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my guess is that's always appreciated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, I mean, and we talk about sleep deprivation a lot at our clinic too in relation to ADHD, but in general we know that sleep deprivation is not a good thing uh, for anybody, whether they have ADHD or not. Um, it, you know, it makes it hard to function. And mm-hmm. y- if you're prone to um, like depression, yeah, depression anxiety. and yeah. anxiety and just challenges with managing emotions, that's just going to make it worse. So that piece is like, okay, maybe there's someone that knows, you know, that I trust that can come and hang out with the baby while I have a, a nap or, you know, can help make meals or just take some of the load off of that piece of it. Um, I think that's amazing. So, like you said before, it's not just the mom's responsibility or the parent's responsibility to be asking for these things, but also other people to say, hey, like, how can I help out that those new parents? Mm-hmm. Or how can I help out that person down the street who maybe can't shovel their walk? Or, um, you know, go bake a pie for somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, um, like you said, all of our responsibilities and whatever role we can play, mm-hmm. however, however we, however in which way we can help, mm-hmm. is kind of nice that way. Um, and we've been focusing a little bit on too. So we within the all our family study, we ask about um, support from support from partners specifically, support from yeah. family, and support from friends. And I think it can't be understated the role those individuals play. Yeah. Um, so, you know, partner and, and family also in, um, you know, children's development and their well-being mm-hmm. and, and supporting um, mom as right. she's going through these life transitions. Um, that, get, that can't be understated. So I think for, you know, for dads who are listening or mm-hmm. extended family members, uh, it, the their role is is really important. It's crucial. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having our conversation. It was awesome. I really enjoyed learning a bit more about your research and your take on all of this stuff because we've definitely had a lot of conversation about this since we started these Workout yes. podcasts. So, thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us and and sharing your insights with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. For listening to Brainchild. This podcast episode was brought to you by support from the Oworko Center. The Oworko Center at the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute is dedicated to studying neurodevelopmental disorders and child mental health. The center draws its support from a large group of multidisciplinary researchers across the University of Calgary with expertise encompassing a broad range of neurodevelopmental and pediatric mental health research. For more information about the Awerko Center, visit researchforkids.ucalgary.ca. To stay connected to Brainchild, visit canlearnsociety.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to brainchild at canlearnsociety.ca. CanLearn Society is a not-for-profit organization located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We serve children, youth, and adults who have literacy, attention, and learning challenges. 
For more information about CanLearn, check out our website at canlearnsociety.ca. At CanLearn, we are dedicated to unlocking potential so all can learn.